Okay. Hi, Kirkwood. Welcome to another episode of the KPO podcast. We have an amazing, exciting podcast for you today. Yes, indeed. This is going to be one fantastic episode because we are joined by none other than author Eric Larson. Going to talk about his new book, The Splendid in the Vile. And uh, I cannot wait to get to the interview. He is one of my favorites. Absolutely. But before we do that, we have just a couple of things to tell you about. So while you're at home, have you been thinking about doing some genealogy research? Well, the library's got you covered. So if you go to the KirkwoodPublicLibrary.org webpage and click on Research It and Databases, you'll find that the library has several different databases that you can search. One is HeritageQuest. Another is our KPL Digital Archive. We also have Missouri Digital Heritage. And of course, we have Ancestry.com. Now, normally Ancestry is only available to you in the library, but since the library is closed, we have temporary in-home access that you can get through your email. So please visit our website and check out these databases. And remember, this is only open to Kirkwood Public Library cardholders. Please check with your home library if you're interested in doing genealogy research but don't have a KPL card. So, Kirkwood, Jagish and I are very excited to welcome our special guest today. Eric Larson is the author of multiple award-winning bestsellers, one of my favorites, The Devil in the White City, Dead Wake, Isaac Storm, just to name a few. His newest book is The Splendid in the Vile, a saga of Churchill, family, and defiance during the Blitz. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, we had a, just a list of questions that we'll just be asking you back and forth. Sure. And so the first question is, uh, in your most recent book, you picked Churchill as your subject. Uh, how did you go about doing the research? Since there's so much information about Churchill out there, right. how did you decide what to include and what not to include? I know you did, um, there's a time limit that you chose, but well, so a lot, lot out there. Yeah, well, I should, I should make clear from the start, though, that um, uh, I didn't set out, actually, initially to write about Churchill. The conception for this book came because we moved to uh, Manhattan from Seattle. And on arriving in New York, I realized that the experience of 9-11 had been very, very different for citizens of New York than, of course, for, for, for the rest of us, who, even though we may have watched it in real time on CNN. And, and I started thinking, well, given how traumatic that was for, for, for New Yorkers, and how could the citizens of London have endured the blitz, you know, 57 consecutive nights of bombing? Mm -hmm. So I actually started thinking about, at first, writing about the typical London family. And then I thought, well, why not write about the quintessential London family? And that was Churchill, his family, and his, his advisors. But, you know, um, uh, once I did that, though, only... Only <laughs> I really truly come to appreciate how much material had been written um, about Churchill and actually by Churchill. He was very prolific about, you know, in his own histories of events. And and so I actually had to make a strategic decision quite early on that I was going to read enough about Churchill to understand thoroughly the Churchillian landscape, if you will. But then I was going to dive right into the archives because that's where I feel most comfortable. And that's where, where if there's anything new to be found, I, I, I hope to, to find it. As it happens, I, I was approaching this, this subject with a, 
with a, a very different sort of lens than anybody else had actually used before, remarkably. Um, I was focusing on how the Churchills and, and, and their circle um, endured the bombings you know, on a daily basis. Um, and nobody actually had done, done that before. So with that window, going into the archives, I was actually able to find quite a bit of, quite a bit of, of, of new material. And also to, to avoid having to feel I had to read absolutely everything about Churchill. Interesting. One of the more fascinating figures you cover in the book is Churchill's youngest daughter. Could you give the uh, listeners, our listeners a sense of who Mary Churchill is? Yeah. Uh, she, first of all, she's my favorite character in, in the book. She, at the time of the act, time the action begins, which was May 10, 1940. And by the way, I should state uh, that I really had, had no conception that I was going to do the first year of Churchill's prime ministry. It just so happens that that first year coincides with the start of, of the, the very early phases of the German air campaign against Britain. Um, and actually ended uh, May 10, 1941, with the last big raid of that campaign. So that, that's why I chose that, that, that one year. Mary uh, figures into this because, as I said, she, when the action begins in my book, she's 17 years old. She's a very smart, articulate young woman um, with a real eye for detail, a very astute observer of all things, totally totally adored her father and wrote the most articulate passages. But it was also the case that she was, in fact, a 17-year-old girl, and she liked to have fun. And, you know, she talks also about going to RAF parties. There are periodic references to snogging in the hayloft. And so really, that was exactly, <laughs> exactly what, I, what I hoped to find by way of diaries involving the Churchill family, because that's what the story was about, how they actually managed to get through it. Now, I was exceptionally lucky to be able to use this diary. I was one of two people at the time. Uh, at the time, I requested to, to, to be able to look at it from, from uh, Mary's daughter, actually. Um, uh, I was one of only two scholars, quote-unquote scholars, who, who had um, been allowed to look at it. So I felt myself very lucky, and uh, I think, frankly, I think she makes the book. She sounds a most interesting figure. I couldn't even imagine what it would be like to live in a, you know, that let alone, you know, be young, 17 and, you know, related to such a huge epic figure like Churchill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, he, she, she, I think she knew that he, he was, um, she knew, acknowledged on, on some level that he was, in fact, an epic character. But to her, of course, she was, she was dad, she was papa, you know, and, and, uh, and there are, I, I think one of my favorite moments in the book is when they're, they're at a christening uh, for, uh, 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 Churchill's new grand uh, grandson, and they're at this, this christening, and, and Churchill insists on, on having a little attention to himself. He wants everybody to drink to his health first, and, and his daughters are all like, "Sit down, Daddy, sit down." So. <laughs> that sounds so fascinating. So, um, one of the things you'd mentioned in the book was about Churchill and the baths. I, I have to, I am curious because he, did he really demand, like, even when he went to another country, that they have the baths ready for him? Oh, yeah. yeah. He demanded a bath wherever he was. I, I don't know that he always got it, but he definitely demanded a bath wherever he went. In fact, there is a, a scene in the book where he, uh, he is in France and, um, yeah, and that's one of the incredible things I found about the whole saga. Even in the midst of this, this chaos and war across the channel, he flew five times to France to try to bolster the, the failing uh, uh, French, uh, French command. Um, but even while there, he insisted on having a bath. 
And when he realized his bath was not available, he burst into a dining room dressed in his, dressed in his red silk kimono. Um, and, and his bad friend said, who is my bath? Or, you know, where's my bath? And, and, and the, uh, the, the two French uh, officers who were in the room sort of reported seeing this, this sort of this deranged genie bursting through the door. So, yeah, <laughs> he really wanted to have a bath wherever he could. And another funny element was when there had been a very severe bombing of, of Bristol um, uh, in, in the UK shortly before Churchill and his entourage had arrived there by, by train. And, you know, the, the, uh, I mean, the city was, you know, a- absolutely, you know, in, in a state of chaos, damage everywhere. And at their hotel, their hotel had no hot water. And so he requested a bath, and, and the front desk said, well, certainly, sir. And the next thing everybody knew, just about everybody in that hotel was marshaled to bring up uh, pails and, and, and buckets and so forth of hot water to fill his tub, because by God, Churchill was going to have a bath <laughs> and bombed out Bristol. Yeah, his confidence and his demand for certain things just amazed me as I was reading through the book. He wanted to be prime minister at this time period. It was pretty amazing. Most people would have backed away, but he was just like, this is me. This is where I'm going to shine the best. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, this, this, was, this was the high point of his life. The thing he had worked for his entire political well, and social career was to be named, named prime minister. The fact that it happened on the day that Hitler invaded the Low Countries, you know, most the so-called phony war became actually a hot shooting war was not at all off-putting to Churchill. I mean, he, he actually, to him, I think it actually enhanced the job because, you know, as he himself put it, you know, what, what can possibly be better than to be prime minister and in charge of the entire operation? He made himself defense minister as well yeah. um, at, at such a time. I mean, to him, this was, this was what he was fated to do. Yeah, yeah, he definitely saw it as a calling. Uh, well, as a calling, but also as, as uh, I, he saw it as a calling, but he also saw it as, as his inevitable desserts. This is what this is what the, the world had, had been waiting for all along with him. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Um, so I went a little off book there with the questions, but um, in other interviews, you've said that you take about a year to find an idea or a topic for a book. Yeah, it's true. It's your idea is, is good or you're ready to, to move forward. Yeah, it, unfortunately, it does take me a very long time. And, I, and I, as, as you know, I always, I always like to mention this, the fact that my, my, my great friend and publicist, Penny Simon, uh, coined a term for when I'm in that phase of looking for an idea, which, by the way, I'm in, in right now. <clears throat> it's when I'm in the dark country of no ideas. And it's really a time of, you know, really a time of, I don't know, you know, it should be fun. I mean, what could be better than to, to be able to graze on <clears throat> in various historical epochs and, <clears throat> excuse me, and try to find, you know, the, the next idea. But it's actually very, very stressful because I want to, I want to get started. I don't want to, I don't like sitting around. I don't take time off. So, so anyway, it's, it, it's hard. The problem is, if you're going to write history like mine, um, you, you, the idea has to have certain criteria in place, has to meet certain criteria. Otherwise, it's just it, it would be it would be fighting a fighting an uphill uh, battle the entire way, and the result would be pretty pretty standard. The problem is you have to have an idea that lends itself. I have to have an idea that lends itself to my style of telling history, which is so-called narrative history. So I don't particularly like, but but and what that means is the idea has to has to first of all has to have a 
first of all, I have to be interested in it because if I'm going to live with this thing for four or five years, it better be interesting. <laughs> second, second, um, uh, it, it has to have a built-in narrative engine or arc, something that um, in and of the story makes it compelling. You know, for example, with, with my book about the Lusitania Dead Wake, you know, there it's sort of a natural, um, uh, natural, uh, there the natural narrative arc or engine is, is the fact that the, this ship sets out on its final voyage. We know what's going to happen. And, and, and that's the arc as, as everything, everything comes to pass, you know, that, that, that causes this, this torpedo to get launched and this ship to sink. So, so the idea has to have a, 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 an inherently compelling arc or, 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 or engine. But then, um, and probably the single most important thing, is that there has to be a really deep, rich archive of primary archival materials. Because otherwise, you, can't, you just can't do narrative history. You can't tell history as a story if you don't have the material. Now, unfortunately, there are authors who try and you know, you've, you've seen, I'm sure, um, uh, books where someone uh, in an author's note uh, seeks to, to 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 get by with making up composite characters or making up dialogue or whatever, but you just can't you can't do it. So you have to have the material, and those three criteria um, are hard to find in, in 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 any single idea. And unfortunately. Uh, it's getting increasingly hard because everybody's gotten into narrative his history. <laughs> it's like everybody's, <laughs> everybody's taken the ideas. So, have, has there ever been an idea that you started on and then you realized that somebody may have grabbed it or that it just wasn't right for you? There have been ideas that that I have I have started out on and, and actually gone pretty far um, on before I realized that this was just not going to work. Um, one, I went all the way to the <clears throat> to the end of the, the the book proposal phase. That's what we do, of course, in nonfiction books. You do a proposal. With fiction, you tend to write the whole novel first, or so I understand. I don't, I don't write novels. Um, I wish I could. Um, but so so um, you know, by the time I got that book proposal done for one of my ideas, which is about six months of work, I, I realized that just something was missing, and I, 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 I to this day I can't even really articulate what it was, except to say that. It, it lacked heart, you know, it lacked heart. Now that's not to say that this idea might once again have a certain currency depending on, on how world circumstances change, you know, who knows? In fact, I'm considering now an idea that I rejected about, uh, about four or five years ago, but now suddenly, um, uh, you know, looking ahead to the post-COVID uh, era, it, it looks like the kind of thing that, that um, I might want to work on it and people might want to might want to read just to get away from all this <laughs> so who knows we could definitely use an escape yes <laughs> yeah, yeah without mass anyway yes <laughs> so i uh love the titles of your books the splendid and the vile devil in the white city the garden of beasts how do you come up with the title they're, they're very creative and and seem to fit the books well thank you well you know the, the titles <clears throat> It, there's no system that I use for titles. Every title, of course, is, is, is obviously book specific. But it's funny. Um, as I'm doing my research, there, there, there is almost invariably a moment where I come to something um, and, and that suddenly a light goes off in my mind where I think, okay, that's it. That, that's the title. I mean, you know, case in point, again, I go back to my Lusitania book, Dead Wake was my, was my, uh, my title. 
when I first came across that in uh, in one of my one of my uh, research stops, whether it was a book or an archive or whatever, I, I was like, "Wow, that's it! That's perfect." Dead wake being the the, the wake that that is, is lingers long after a, a ship or a boat has passed. In the case of the Splendid and Vile, um, I knew that very early on. I was going through a, a, another diary, a diary by a fellow named John Colville, who's a char significant character in the book. He was a uh, one of Churchill's cadre of, of private secretaries. These were young men. Um, they were all young men, very hardworking group of guys who actually were were more or less, certain more or less as apprentice prime ministers, honestly. And uh, John Colville was a, was a prolific diarist. He wrote, he, he left behind what's probably the single best diary from, from that era, a diary, by the way, that he should not have been keeping. It was a gross, gross violation of, of, of security laws then, then in place, but he kept it. And it offers the best window on daily life at 10 Downing Street. I mean, really the fine grain stuff, the baths, the, you know, the, 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 the Churchill liking, you know, dirty stories and, and uh, you know, relationships between Churchill and Clementine and Clementine and Colville and so forth. But anyway, one night, um, John Colville, during, during the worst of the air raids against London, the first deliberate air raid against London began on September 7, 1940. At one point uh, during that, that intense period when the city was being bombed, you know, every single night, John Colville watches a particularly intense raid from a bedroom window. And, and he is struck by really how, how beautiful the night was. You had searchlights, you had bombs, you know, anti-aircraft shells exploding, you've got flames, you've got this this sable black night with stars and all this stuff. And he, he was so struck by it that he, he wrote about how it was just this, this incredible juxtaposition of natural splendor and human vileness. And mm -hmm. right away I thought, okay, that's it, splendid and the vile. Because that really kind of Very poetic. <laughs> Very poetic, I, that's, that's cold though. Well, uh, as we like to wrap up here, uh, being librarians, we love to make book recommendations. So what are you reading right now that we should be reading or what's a title that's influenced you and is important? I am reading a thriller and I can't remember the author's name called Watch Me Disappear, which I quite like. Um, I just finished <laughs> two books that I really, really liked. I'll tell you about those because I, I finished those. Um, I, I mean, I do like Watch Me Disappear, but I, I haven't finished it yet. So I, how can I recommend it? might take a turn. Yeah. So it might take, might take a turn, but actually it's getting better and better. Uh, but anyway, so I just finished reading. It's talking about pandemic reading. I just finished reading The Lord of the Flies by William Golden. Mm -hmm. And boy, just I came to a whole new appreciation of how good that book is, especially the sudden radical shift in point of view in the last five pages that was just so revelatory. I had, I had not appreciated that until this reading. And then uh, a, a new book that I keep telling everybody about, so I just love the prose, is, is this book called Things in Jars by Jess Kidd. Have I got that right? Jess Kidd? Um, an Irish writer. Um, Irish writer. And, and the, the, the prose is just so original first of all and, and, and kind of magical so yeah so I, I really like that oh nice so you kind of alluded to you're working on a new idea are you comfortable telling us what that idea might be or what's next 
No, I would never. <laughs> I, I never ever tell people um, what I'm working on. I never, I never tell my my kids. I mean, if they asked, I might, I might tell them. I mean, I had a funny experience with this, but we, we got two minutes. Um, when I was, you know, about a year into the book, I, my middle daughter, who's a writer, she's actually a, 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 an editor at a magazine, uh, features editor, and she, she and I had uh, had uh, lunch in New York. We would have periodic what we refer to as career counseling sessions, which is basically. We go to this great place, Bar Sardine, actually. I hope it opens at some point again um, for a great burger, and of course, a couple of glasses of wine at the bar, and and just talk about what she was doing. And, and she happened to mention, ask me what I was working on. So I made the mistake of telling her that it was about Churchill and this this period and how they survived the whole thing. And she looked at me with this 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 almost troubled look, like, Dad, what are you doing? It's been done so much. And that was rattling around in my head for the next four years. So, oh, so yeah. I, really, I, I try not to violate. My, my wife always knows what I'm working mm -hmm. on. She always reads my book proposals, but uh, I keep I keep everything very close to the vest. No spoilers. <laughs> no spoilers. No. <laughs> All right. Well, today's guest was Eric Larson. His newest book is *The Splendid in the Vile*, and it's available through your Kirkwood Public Library via print or audio. This title and Eric's previous titles are also available digitally via OverDrive, which you can access by your Kirkwood Public Library card. And not to forget to mention, certainly available where most good books are sold. Eric, it was a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Stay well. Wash those hands. And yes. <laughs> Fantastic you. advice. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, it's our pleasure. And I wanted to say before you go, uh, I, um, so when, when uh, The Devil in White City came out, I wasn't much of a nonfiction reader, but I was working at Borders, and that was the, the buzz at the time. And I read that in one night, and I'll say that that book was my gateway drug to the world of nonfiction. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. good. <laughs> I could be it, <laughs> it remains a, a constant on my staff recommends, and uh, I've enjoyed all your books. So thank you for doing this. Thank you. Take right. care, be healthy and safe. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. So thanks for joining us once again, Kirkwood. But before we go, it's still summer reading, and that means there is a Kirkwood Public Library podcast challenge. Secret word is imagine, and we hope you enjoy your summer reading and this episode, and we'll see you back here next week. <laughs>